Hey everyone, welcome to Madison BookBeat, your listener-sponsored community radio home for authors, topics, book events, and publishers. I'm your host, Andrew Thomas, and our guest today is Peter Coviello for a conversation on his new book of essays, Is There God After Prince? Dispatches from an Age of Last Things, published by the University of Chicago Press in 2023. In early November of last year, Peter gave a reading of his work at a Room of One's Own bookstore here in Madison, so it's great to have him back on Madison Airwaves again. Peter Coviello is the author of six books, including Make Yourself Gods, a finalist for the 2020 John Whitmer Historical Association Best Book Prize, Tomorrow's Parties, a 2013 finalist for a Lambda Literary Award in LGBT Studies, and Long Players, a memoir selected as one of Art Forum's 10 Best Books of 2018. His newest book, Is There God After Prince? Dispatches from an Age of Last Things, was selected as a most anticipated title by both the Millions and the Lambda Literary Review and appeared in Gear In List for 2023 from the Chicago Tribune, the Seminary Co-op Bookstore, and elsewhere. He taught for many years at Bowdoin College, and since 2014 has been at the University of Illinois Chicago, where he is professor and head of English. Is There God After Prince? Dispatches from an Age of Last Things is an incisive collection of essays written over the course of a decade. Exuberant, effusive, wry, and superlative, these short essays, and I mean short, most are five to ten pages in length, bring together a wide range of contemporary novels, movies, and perhaps most importantly, songs and song lyrics, in order to shore up some sense of consolation against an ongoing sense of impending doom. By focusing on beloved novels and albums and the connections they help foster between loved ones, Coviello argues that these attachments are small mercies that buoy us up in light of what he terms end-strickenness. With verve and agility, Coviello surveys a large swath of contemporary culture in an effort to rethink what literary criticism can do and to assure us that not all of contemporary life is a wasteland of broken images. Peter Coviello, welcome to Madison Bookbeat. Andrew, thank you so much. What a, what a kind and wonderful introduction. I am I'm delighted to be here. I was entirely inspired by the writing itself, so I only have you to thank for that. <laughs> Again, that's very, very kind of you. Yeah. Well, you know, I'd, I'd love to start with something easy. Let's start with the end of all. Yeah. Let's start with the end of all things as we know it and work back, <laughs> and, and work backwards from there. Um, your, your, yeah. sub, your subtitle is Dispatches from an Age of Last Things, and you coined the term end strickenness. And for our listeners, that's end, E-N-D, strickenness. <laughs> And you use that to describe life at the end of things. Can you tell us about that term? Yeah, I, I absolutely can. And that's a nice, uh, I thank you for that. It's a nice way into uh, what I've taken to describing when I've talked about the book as a, as a basically downhearted book about joy, uh, which is about right. It's, I, I think that it's hard to be a person who's living in the 2020s and to not feel the entirety of one's life is shadowed by the prospect of a number of coming to ends. Of course, some of them have been long ongoing, some of them are newer, uh, uh, slow-moving planetary immolation is perhaps just the one that catches up most immediately. It's difficult to imagine fully the shape of the world in like 2055, you know what I mean? Um, so there's that, but of course with it, we're at a, a a global and political moment where lots of structures that have been built for good and ill that had held for a long time, uh, 70-ish years or so, are teetering toward what seems from a lot of perspectives like collapse. One feels a, a queasy 1933-ish energy in the air one does if one is me. Um, and all of these things, the 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 uh, planetary ruin retrenchment in many forms, uh, uh, institutional rot coming more and more home to roost. It seems to me shadow all of our lives in ways infinitesimal and also very large. Uh, and part of what I wanted to do in the book is just think about what it's like living inside a lot of near inconceivabilities, you know what I mean? And that's where a lot of the, 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 the energy of the book comes from. And its basic question is like, what can and might it mean 
to love things like anything, you know, like a book, like a, stupid things, books, movies, pop songs, but also not stupid things like your friends, the scenes you're a part of, the social worlds you live in. What can I mean to love those things inside an era of genuine and large scale calamity? And that's what the, that's the, that's the unjoyful premise that motivates a lot of these discussions of, you know, joy. Yeah. Yeah. One of your final essays in the collection is is In the Maze, and it's a reflection on Stanley oh, Kubrick's yeah. iconic 1980 film, The Shining. And more so than any other essay, I actually found this one was really kind of helped getting to this point of, of, of in strickenness, your reading of the film. So could you just talk to us about that? How does your reading of the oh. film give us a framework for for understanding in strickenness? Yeah, that's, that's, that's a very kind question. It's funny about that essay. That's in certain ways the most... Uh, academic of the, or the, or the most scholarly of the essays, though, as you say, the, the pitch of the book is really to write criticism in a vernacular mode. Like I'm a literary scholar, I'm a historian of sexuality, all that sort of stuff. But when I was writing these essays, I wanted to write in the voice that I would use, say, to talk to you over dinner, or that I would use to fight with my friends at the bar. Like that is a very, it seems to me, energizing mode of discourse, you know what I mean? Of talking, and I wanted to be a part of that when I was writing. So that that essay came from another scene of talk, which I have a lot of reverence for. It's not just like dinner parties in the bar, uh, but the classroom, you know what I mean? Like I taught, I would, I used to teach classes that fought hard about uh, sexuality and childhood. I'm a person who thinks about queer theory a lot. What does it mean to think about, you know, sexuality in its relation to surrounding children? Now for a movie I taught for a long time was The Shining, Stanley Kubrick's movie, which as you know, is like a movie version of the novel written by Stephen King. And Stephen King's novel is really graphically and, and shudderingly a novel about having an alcoholic father, physically abusive alcoholic father. It seems to me Kubrick takes that premise and plays it up a much darker key. Um, and it's a movie about uh, a different and not especially occluded, though hard to encounter, kind of abuse that's happening. And it, there's all these signs of a particular kind of sexual abuse between Jack and his son, Danny. But the thing about the movie is, despite it announcing that at all these places, it's sort of hard. Much of what the movie is about is um, how people live with what they cannot bear to know. Danny, the child, actually can't bear to think of the harm being done to him by his father. Danny's mother can't bear to encounter the knowledge of what's happening in her family. Jack can only barely conceive of what it is he's doing. So they have these elaborate fantasy lives that are all involved in putting their shoulders to the wheel of not knowing what's happening around them. And oh my God, man, that for me was a very potent way to think about what it's like to be alive now where we both know things. Like I'm not going to, I have no facts that nobody else doesn't have access to about like the world in 2055. People not me can look up like the very middle of the road UN projections about like desalination and melt and the numbers, the billions of displaced people, et cetera, et cetera. These are all facts, but they're hard to know. They're hard to encounter. We live with them. They're inside us. But our relation to them is something just, a, just to one side of what you might call knowledge. And relations that are anguished and just to one side of knowledge, that seemed to me what The Shining was very deeply about. And it, I, I was you know, grateful for it because it helped me think those things. And it also allowed me to sort of encounter The Shining as actually, uh, for all of Kubrick's famous coldness, like an actually very tender-hearted um, and grieving movie. So that's 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 where that came from, and it really did help me think about what I was trying to do with the whole book. Yeah, yeah, and you know, you you write at one point that even though this came out in 1980, it 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 seems like it's just as relevant as as as, as if it could have come out last week, and 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 yeah. the, and the things that it's trying to address, or that you're seeing in it, that and the, and that that it's trying to address. Yeah, it's funny. I feel like I talk a lot about, uh, I've talked about a number of things that seem to get more, rather, that's part of what appeals to me about them is they get more rather than less prescient. Like I talk about Heathers, a movie I'm very devoted to, a uh, uh, Gen X kid that I am, um, whose who's scenes of, um, I don't even know what you'd call it, it's not quite redemptive violence, but, but whose uh, commitments seem more nervy now. 
even than they did in 1989. And I can tell you that in 1989, they landed, at least they did with me. Um, that sort of um, the, the, the transformation of beloved objects over the churn of time is something that, I, that, 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 that fascinates me in a lot of these objects. Songs are, of course, where all of us encounter that. Mm a million times, you know, a song that you first heard at such and such a time is then sort of layered with this accretion of meanings and then it pops for you again in a in a present tense moment. That's sort of the, the template for all of that happening. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're illustrating very well the, the general mode of operation of the collection of essays is that so many of your points are underscored by you providing close readings of novels or snatches of lyrics. And again, this is as a literary scholar, this is no surprise. But, you know, uh, what I was interested in in the introduction is you point out that you say that one thing that criticism might do is chart the ways that certain cherished things make the otherwise unsensible world sensible. For those unfamiliar, what what is literary criticism in brief and how does what you're doing, yeah. how, how does it function in this in this collection? Yeah, well, there's a lot of ways you could describe what literary criticism is. One of them that I'm sort of partial to would be as criticism as like a very careful accounting of the formal properties that inhere in a work, a novel, a poem, a, a, a work of art. And, by, and the idea is that by paying exceedingly close attention to the materials of which it's made, the ambivalences that it fosters, the kinds of meaning it sets in relation to one another, one can get a new and larger purchase on what's at stake in that object and in that object's relation to oneself or to the world or whatever like that. And that's like what I grew up on, you know what I mean? That's that's how I, that is my trade and it has a kind of trade language to it, academic literary criticism particularly. But it seemed to me that the reason I got into the business in the first place is because when I was young, I liked doing a similar, very uncredentialed thing with the people I loved, which is to say, we would encounter something, a song, a movie, a book, and we would fight about it, which is just to say, in a much simpler sense, we would turn our relation to that object into language. And the point of that was to trade language back and forth and to see what they thought. And then it would lean against what I thought. And that making together of a language is another way of describing what literary criticism might be. What interests me in the book, of course, is that making a language together is also a way of describing not just literary criticism, but like what it means to fall in love with a person, what it means to have friends, what it means to live in a social world. It's this project of collective language making. And the overlap between those two things, between like literary criticism in a certain mode and like ardent, impassioned world making in a certain mode, that when I sort of figured that out, that's when I started writing these essays a lot. That's a thing that I wanted to... To, to make a case for, to make a case for literary criticism as actually part of how most of us like know how to make the worlds around us and to make them habitable and to make them filled with joy and to make them sort of like bulwarks against the sorrows that nevertheless afflict those worlds. It seems like some of the staying power of, of the novels, the lyrics, the movies that you love is that they, in a lot of ways, they become seen, they, they are scenes and settings of language making in, in the way that yeah, they encourage totally. interactions with, with others. Um, you're very aware that your reading audience may not share the same enthusiasm about about the <laughs> novels or albums or films that you're writing about. You know, you, Are you, you trying you're... to tell me that everyone is not that into, I don't know, Steely Dan or whatnot? I mean, that's cool, I guess. <laughs> you make compelling cases. Like after each essay, I was like, well, maybe maybe I should revisit some of this. Um, no, yeah, that's, that's yeah. But, uh, yeah, well, that's well, the, well, a writer challenge. What, what, what's so what's so refreshing about it is that you're always ready to admit that these things you love might they might be corny or cliche or or out of vogue and and yet you persist in your love of them and and yeah. i couldn't help but think of the queer theorist eve sedgwick's concept of reparative reading um yeah. as, as i as i read essay after essay you know and and as as i understand it the a reparative reading it was not meant to replace a kind of symptomatic reading of a text where we're trying to find ways that the text undermines itself or the ways that we can make kind of ide ideological critique. That's good and grand, but also reparative reading is a space where we can 
open up a text for despite its shortcomings the the things that it affords us to enjoy to love and so i was just curious i know you specialize in queer theory is reparative reading something that you saw yourself actively engaging in in this in this collection Uh, that's very that's very beautifully said there's there aren't a lot of people who mean more to me or who have meant more to me as writers and thinkers than 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 Eve Cedric, that's partially because of what I do. It's partially because of the age I am, but it's also partially because of how she wrote. And I guess what I wanted to do and what I hope the book does is go as hard as it can in both directions at once. That is to say, if you're going to write a book about like end strickenness and what you're, you take to be a collapsing political world, you are going to have to be fluent in the language of critique. That's going to have to be very, very near to you. But what I would want is for that language, like held to with conviction and vehemence, would not obviate a sense either that one loves things and that the ardor one invests in things also spreads to the people who surround that thing. So that uh, what I end up saying, and this does really come from Cedric in a lot of ways, like, Part of part of what you hear, part of what can make you feel both joyous and anguished when you hear something you love, like when I listen to to Prince, when I listen to Pink Cashmere or something like that, it's sort of miraculous that such a thing actually exists in the world. You can hardly believe it, and the joy of that wells up in you, and it attaches you to everyone you've loved in the scene of that music. But a part of you will recognize too that even that miraculous thing does not scale up. Mm. to the damage of the world. It's not a cure for the things that wreck the world. And there's a sorrow and an anguish in that. I would want to write about both things in simultaneity. I would want to give no quarter on either of them. And and I would want to try to suggest that that love, while it may not be like a political force in itself, helps keep us attached to the world. And that without an attachment to the world, it's hard to make a politics. Like sure. it's, hard to, it's hard to be engaged in the world unless one feels held in it in some ways. And for me, at least, nothing has held me to the world, you know, like like loving these these slight useless things like poems and books and, and movies and, and, and songs. And so I want to make a case for what can be done with that attachment to life. There was a refrain that I noticed it occurred more in the beginning uh, or, you know, in in the earlier part of the book, but you frequently came back to the phrase, it's not nothing, you know, <laughs> like this love. And, and it's, it's like, I felt like that was such a pithy way is it's like, it, yeah. it is, it is consolation, but it's not, it's not naive. The very beloved friend, I gave her a reading in Michigan and my very beloved friend named Paul Erickson was reading with me. And he said, like, I feel like the watchword of this book is the phrase, not nothing. And I think that's, that's, right in 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 a lot of ways i'm very committed to not um producing a a functionally belittling valorization Mm. of literature or songs like to say that this is like if we if only people loved books more the world wouldn't be chaotic and violent that seems to me ridiculous (laughs) like there are plenty of uh, uh politically hideous mobilizations have taken place totally in sync with an ardent love for the highest of high art objects. I'm not, I'm not trying to say that. And I'm also not trying to say that, oh, these objects are curative at the level of the world. That, again, seems to me a belittling sort of valorization. I would want to say, though, that there is something at stake in loving them. And that might be our attachment to one another and our attachment to the worlds we could make together. And some sort of mobilized politics might follow from that. Um, that would be the slender space of, of not nothing, of the, the, the double negation that goes into not nothing. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I noticed the subtitle is Dispatches from an Age of Last Things, not the Age of Last Things. <laughs> so my literary training has me, has me honing in on this. So uh, what that suggests to me is that in strickenness is a recursive phenomenon that yep. that that apocalypse is cyclical um would would you agree yeah i mean i think that as i've as i've gone around the country reading a lot of people have said very thoughtfully like plenty of ages have their eschatologies and that's just 
absolutely the case. The world uh, 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 ends in lots of different ways. 1492 is an eschatology. Um, um, and there, there are sort of cynical but not wrong reading is to say, people are uptight about end-strickenness now because it seems newly and in the post-2008 contraction and crash that the like white middle classes are more threatened by precarity than before. And because of that, there's a new sense of, of ending this because of uh, a, a, a certain like national decline. There's a new urgent sense of it. And that doesn't seem to be wrong in the least. I would say, and I had say, have said that a, uh, um, planetary immolation seems to me a complicating figure in that. Not because there won't be an uber class of winners in the uh, destruction of the habitable earth. There will be, so long as we're still, um, you know, functionally capitalist world, there will be some people who who profit and survive, et cetera. But it seems to me the, the ever larger scale of that threat, the ever larger um, portions of the human populace who are surplus to the functions of the world marks a kind of difference that I would want to note while not canceling the other reason of like, oh, so much of the anxiety is just about like a particularly American decline, particularly white or middle-class decline. I think that's true too. Again, trying to hold those not coincident things together is part of the project of the of the thinking in the book. You were listening to Madison Bookbeat, and I am your host, Andrew Thomas. Today, we are talking with Peter Coviello about his essay collection, Is There God After Prince? Dispatches from an Age of Last Things, published in 2023 by the University of Chicago Press. Uh, Peter, as your title might suggest music and its influence is central to this collection of essays whether it's prince's undying effervescence or van morrison's psychedelic astral days or the lyrics of chance the rapper or pavement or joni mitchell phoebe bridgers the list goes on and i think that's kind of the point but you're you're, <laughs> you're always returning to music so what what is yeah. music capable of that other art forms aren't especially as you're thinking about kind of in strickenness and the relations that we're building with other people, what is the power of the mixtape? Maybe is is another <laughs> is another way of framing that uh, is another way of framing that question. Well, I'll I'll try to answer uh, quickly and in both small and large scale, like like autobiographically, which is the quite boringest framework to speak of it. Like songs have meant a lot to me when I've tried to repair worlds I've been in that have been broken, as you know, like a lot of the book is weirdly about step-parenthood and uh, family and about having been a step-parent to two little girls and then having been sort of ejected from that world uh, somewhat abruptly and trying to make cohesion and make life with those two now very no longer little girls. And music was a place where we could find a language with which to be in relation to one another. Um, and that was so much larger than consolation. That was a, 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 a thing for which no kind of grateful devotion, no, no gesture of gratitude quite sufficed. So just, you know, autobiographically, when I've been most devastated, and I'm sure this is true of you and true of many people, when I've been most devastated and when an attachment to life seemed most wavering, songs held me there like nothing else in the world why well this is a larger answer i mean records are great archives you know they hold in them the whole world that you lived in when you first encountered it or the whole scene the people the loves and enmities and those can be really useful to re-encounter those can be ballasting i'd say most largely i mean one of the great things you can say about music is it doesn't uh it is not bound by the condition of language. It can, we can throw language at it, but it is something in relation to, but apart from language. And in that sense, it's always shading off toward the inarticulable and, the, and something that travels just at the outer edges of speech. Um, and that makes it both transporting and it, and it uh, makes one keep returning to it as though to get something more out of it. But that meant a lot to me too when I started to think about what we've talked about before, that the conditions of the world at the moment seem to me beyond the edge of fully thinkable. 
fully knowable when I when I think about the conditions of the world in 2055 or whatever. I have some knowledge, but there's something fundamentally inconceivable about it, despite that breadth of available knowledge. Um, and the play between uh, what is known and what is sliding away from knowledge um, is something that you get pre-trained in if you listen to records all the time. And so that's a, that's the larger, uh, not not merely autobiographical uh, reason that you know songs have so much to do with the book and so much to do with you know the, the best kind of thinking I know how to do for whatever it's worth. So much of your insight from this book comes from your interaction with with younger people, both in the role as a as a yeah. as a stepfather, as as a professor teaching and interacting with your students. You know, and at, at one point you write, "Try to be on the side of the young people." Now is in the past. You can do a lot worse by way of first premises, <laughs> which is pretty great. Um, how how have your interactions with young people shaped the writing of these essays and how you're thinking about the work that they're oh. trying to do? Andrew, that's just a great question, like in a whole bunch of ways. And one of the great things about really loving young people and especially loving them as a step parent, but also as a teacher is you get to recognize when to shut up, like when to recognize that that the imposition of your predilections is actually not what's called for. Like there's, and that's been so important to me. I've, I've, you know, as unsurprisingly to anybody listening, like, like I've loved music for a long time. I've played in bands, I've been in scenes, stuff like that. And there's always been something more than a little repellent to me about aspects of certain of those scenes. And it's always to do with a kind of like self-insisting dude who I don't want to be <laughs> and whose company made me nervous. And like, if you're hanging around with kids, they just kind of won't have it, you know? Like you have, they, they just, they, the last thing they need from you is a map to the byways of cool. You know what I mean? Like they know what they're doing. Um, and they have a great nose for cant or falsehood or self-importance. And that's kind of great. The, the other super edges of um, thing of the reading I gave in Madison, a super educative thing about young people is that man, whatever else you could say about adolescence, their preposterousness, their self uh, uh, inflation, whatever, whatever, they really know from desire, you know? They know what it is to be hungry for the world, for a world that's transpiring near to them, but still across some like misty shore. And I have such reverence for that. I have such sort of preposterous regard for uh, young people's commitment to de to desire for their for their hunger for a world that's not yet available to them. And when you get older, it's hard not to feel a tremendous tenderness toward that world hunger, no matter what preposterous form it takes, no matter how ludicrous it looks in the event, no matter how silly. Um, and that's nice because then one could look back on one's own preposterous youth with a little more tenderness. So that's helpful too. Has there been something that you have taught recently that really resonated with them that you found surprising or, or were perhaps not, not, not expecting? Yeah, you know, you never know what lands. Like I, you know, I'm 19th century Mary, so I'm always teaching Moby Dick, which is first of all, super hard and super long, but you'll be startled by the parts of it that will land with the kids. Like last time I taught Moby Dick, I taught to a class of kids at UIC, bless them, they're fantastic. And they usually, or I, in the past, I've had to like, <laughs> uh, here's a great thing to do as a teacher, explain why something's funny. <laughs> that always lands, you know what I mean? But they were so taken, they couldn't believe this book that was so storied, that was supposed to be so important, was also so irreverent, so blaspheming, so taken with puns, so taken with like, like, like body humor. And that was a delight. That was just, just an absolute delight you know that people have loved carson mccullers when i've taught that that's always a, a pleasure you know like the member of the wedding is always just watching people be completely taken by that it's a real it's a real like whatever teaching has its laboriousness etc cetera, etc cetera. but watching young people get fired up by something they didn't know they were going to find and like discovering in themselves a new 
gear a new capacity for captivation, that rules. Yeah, <laughs> that's a little that's a little bit of bottled up magic in your day. Absolutely. At one point, you have an essay on your experiences of grad school. And given your own hmm. position in your department, I'm curious, just like, what are your reflections on on kind of the state of of graduate education? Probably speaking to your experience in the in the in the humanities, but I'm I'm just curious to hear, like, what are your what are your reflections on on graduate education? Yeah, I'd say a couple things at once. Like, and you in Wisconsin will be near to this, particularly like graduate education and humanities education um, are are lagging indicators, and the leading thing that they indicate is a decimation of public services, neoliberal decimation of public services, like things like those. Humanities and and uh, education will go on. I think as long as there is school and it'll go on in private places and in moneyed places because the winning classes will want those things for their children. Uh, in public places such as the one I teach at, such as the one I know you have doings with and I have doings with in Wisconsin, they're more and more and more strapped to produce a kind of financialized outcome. And that's, what is that? What have we seen? We know what we've seen. That's been an absolute decimation of public higher education, removal of public funds from higher education at a huge scale. And downstream of that, there are just fewer jobs. So what I tell new people when they come into the department is, listen, if you're here to be a graduate because you think there's like tenure track employment at the end of this rainbow, I beg you to reconsider because that is exceptionally unlikely. However, if what you're here for because you're young and you want some time to think to get paid pretty poorly but be in a union job and what is most of your job it's teaching people and it's thinking about books then this is a good place for you for five or six or seven years this is a good place for you uh to do that work whatever will come of it and at the end of it i'll try my best and all of us will try our best to make sure some employment some life sustenance comes at the other side of it but the idea that it'll look like what it looked like 25 years ago is preposterous. And I would ask you to like disabuse yourself of that fantasy. Um, even though I would, if, then, as I would want to say, those years themselves will be galvanizing and transformative, even outside the prospect of uh, the possibility of tenure track employment. And I, and I, you know, I want to say that because if you just say the first thing, there's no jobs, et cetera, et cetera. All you're telling is, that, oh, well, then the children of the rich will do this because they can afford it. And then five or six years later, and I don't want that either. I don't want that either. I, that's not what I want education for. That's why. That's not why I teach at a place like UIC, you know? So, yeah, trying to say those. And once again, trying to say two non-coincident things at once with equal vehemence. <laughs> it's not nothing. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. That's what you say about graduate school. It may come to something quite close to it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, except that, you know, yeah. But I mean, I think you know what I mean. Like, the, like it's, it's, it's not great to expend youth and time and energy and labor in something that doesn't issue in, like, life-sustaining employment. That is not great to say the least of it. At the same time, what happens to you there, what you learn there, what you learn how to do there, what you learn how to love there, what you learn how to be angry about there can be um, life solidifying, if not materially, can be galvanizing. And again, I wouldn't want to give quarter on either of those. You sum it up quite well in, in your essay, Love in the Ruins, which is your, your experiences of grad school. And this is where you bring up the idea of collective lang language making. And you write, making language together is another way of describing what it is that happens when you fall in love with friends, with lovers, with entire scenes. Where have you seen other scenes that this has been replicated, but not, not attached to an institution? Oh, yeah. And I, that's a great question. I feel like largely they're not attached to institutions. They're super informal. Part of what the book really wants to speak up for is the power and the persuasive force of all these deinstitutionalized, uncredentialed scenes. Like when I'm with my friends in a bar and we're talking about a, 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 a book or a movie or whatever, the only institution that it's a part of is the bar, you know? <laughs> and with my, um, say, just my stepdaughters who are now in their late 20s, they make worlds together all the time with an ingenuity that surpasses my own by many powers. And they've had to do it under conditions 
um, much more collapsing than mine, post-2008 uh, uh, conditions, conditions having to do with the pandemic, all that sort of stuff. The ways that people make the world through talks, through, through talking to one another are, it seemed to me, as limitless as the topics of talk. Uh, 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 they, they can be people in a particular kind of club. They can be a particular sort of affinity. They can be people like, listen, I write a lot about um, religion. Churches are, among other things, like scenes of intense social cohesion oriented toward questions of a kind of ultimacy. And I got real regard for that. I may not be a follower of all the strictures that, it, that uh, uh, appear there. All scenes produce their strictures internally or otherwise. But I got a lot of reverence for people trying to make worlds around themselves and those they love to make life a little more survivable. Um, so again, like just uh, uh, like a multitude of places that happens. I mean, for me, and I think for a lot of people my age, happen around bands, you know what I mean? Like. Mm -hmm live in a city and you're in a scene and bands come through and you see them and you get to know people there and you get to hang out with people and you see what kind of lives they lead and the institutions there are like clubs <laughs> um and again the pandemic was super hard because you had to do without them um and 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 that's when the power of songs to hold on to those fragile scenes was like anguishingly important to me, you know, you could, you could be in your little isolated room listening to a Los Campesinos record from like 2011 and just, just want to collapse in weepiness. But yeah, yeah, that, that's a, that's an overlong answer to say, oh my God, the, the places those scenes proliferate. I mean, I'm old now, I'm in my fifties. They, they, they exceed my ability to be in them by many powers. <laughs> We are listening to Peter Coviello talk about his essay collection, Is There God After Prince? Dispatches from an Age of Last Things, published in 2023 by the University of Chicago Press. And you are listening to Madison Bookbeat. I am your host, Andrew Thomas. One of the most moving passages was in your essay, Joy Rounds First, where you discuss relocating to Chicago from Maine. Um, and before we talk any more about that essay, would you just mind reading uh, that passage for us? Yeah, I, I will. This is about uh, this is a, about a midlife relocation, like moving places uh, in your forties and finding yourself uh, a little bit bereft. So that passage goes: uh, Instead, I walked around this city, which is Chicago. I walked around the city I had always delighted in and experienced a strange sort of dislocation. I had people here, in fact, some very dear loves, and a small band of generous-hearted friends of friends who were willing to meet up for bourbon and sympathy. All this was steadying, but I felt, too, with sometimes terrible acuity, the difference between having some people and being part of a world some dense and coherent collection of interwoven loves among whom you feel not just safe, not just pleasingly legible, but enriched, enlivened, pushed out toward ampler versions of yourself. On the losing days, and I confess there were more of these than otherwise, it felt like desolation, this living at the center of a world grown suddenly pretty uncrowded I'd wake up in this new place, blink myself into consciousness, and there'd come this quick, hot burst of fear, of aloneness, of isolation without remedy, of a separateness from the heat and light of the turning human world. The difference between having some people and being part of a world. Peter, that 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 distinction just resonates so 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 acutely for me, and it's and it's so it's so well it's so well phrased. Um, what our listeners probably don't know is that this beautiful passage is buried in an essay where you provide a heartfelt apologia for the career of Yankee shortstop Derek Jeter. <laughs> I know it's terrible. It's terrible. It's terrible. There's no excuse for it. There's no. There's no. What am I gonna do? I was away from the East Coast, and I was in Chicago, and it was Derek Jeter's last at bat, and it was all very, yeah, it was all very wrought up. Yeah. 
but yeah, there's no excuse for it. It's 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 a beautiful essay because <laughs> I, I do I do think it underscores kind of the larger moral of a, a lot of what these essays are doing. But you know, so just my initial question was kind of like, how did your love of baseball fill? this particular void and loneliness that, that, that you were feeling at the time, but more, more generally as, as you write about baseball, as this kind of, again, this attachment that you have, how did it help in this particular moment? Yeah, it was a way of being attached to like, I don't, my hand, I don't know that much about baseball. I don't know much about that much about sports really. But when I was a kid, I'm an Italian kid from the East coast. So of course I like the Yankees. What was I going to do? Tell my, my grandmother who loved Joe DiMaggio that I was not going to be a Yankee fan because they're because they're because of George Steinbrenner. No. So it's just a way of being with people, you know, going to baseball games and and feeling held by my family. And, you know, one thing about sports stars, I gave a reading last week in Baltimore and a person asked me, like, what are the conditions? The person was like, you know, you say you're allergic to scenes where boys are a particular kind of dismissive and jerky. What are the conditions that make it possible to be in a scene in a different way? And I found myself saying that so long as everybody knows they belong and that their belonging in that scene is not in question, you can go hard. You can sustain a lot of disagreement, a lot of vehement, excessive contradiction and, and disagreement. Like, what are you kidding? You like that kid? That's so ridiculous that you'd like that. If you know that you belong, which is a kind of a, a more general way of saying, if you feel loved, if you feel that whatever is in question, the song, the player, the, the novel, what's not in question is that you're loved in that scene, then that affords a lot of latitude. That affords a, 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 a spaciousness for your language to move in and your commitments to move in. Um, and nice thing about Derek Jeter in that particular scene, everybody watching this game from around the country, is it reminded me that even though I felt very lonely in this city where I hadn't lived in a long time, there were people who loved me. Yeah. And they were there. That love was, was, was unruined, if even dispersed. And, you know, I'll always be grateful to Derek Jeter for that. God bless him. <laughs> Another essay, uh, Our Man in the 15th. It's very, very, yeah. very different direction. But you're talking about, you know, being in spaces where you feel comfortable and safe to disagree. Uh, the kind of opening anecdote for this is, is very different in that there are a couple of yeah. uh, very right-wing commentators who started dropping the name of French theorist Michel Foucault <laughs> and, and, and some of their and some of their essays. And yeah. Foucault was kind of a stand-in, it seemed like, for uh, you know, the decline of civilization, wokeness on the left, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but could you talk a little bit about that essay? Because it, it seems it, it seems prescient as we think about 2024 and potentially what's to come. The the instrickenness looming on the horizon. Absolutely. Unsurprisingly, there was a series, and it must have gone out in some like white paper that I don't have access to, but like right as uh, the the large scale Black Lives Matter protests were convulsing not just the northern Midwest, but most of the world, these dailies, like these Murdoch dailies, came out with a bunch of editorialists uh, talking about, of all people, Michelle Foucault, like a figure that you might remember from grad school in the 90s. And he really signified like the decline of all the humanist verities, like wokeness and political correctness and opposition to um, the tried and true liberal order. Um, and they were each and all more or less preposterous, which made them sort of amusing, but they were symptomatic in a real way. And one of the things I, I came to think about them is that there was something all these um, writers said there's something malign and seductive about Foucault. I just feel like he would love that. <laughs> I, know. I know, there he is, like gay, bald, French, you know, holding a catch, looking mysterious. And it seemed to me that it expressed on behalf of very unpersuaded and largely um, reactionary writers, the suspicion that inside worlds of counteraction, inside worlds of struggle, inside worlds 
um, of people gathering together and taking to the streets to try and mass to rearticulate the possibilities of the world. Somewhere in this world, there must be unimaginable pleasures. There must be only barely conceivable forms of alliance and solidarity and joy. And we must persuade young people away from them. <laughs> you know? And that's, a, you know, listen, as a person who's committed to their union, as a person who is committed to act up, as a person who knows what it is to be um, in the streets with your comrades and to feel a particular quality of ardor for them. I loved that. I love that Foucault was the sign of that for them, like of a malign enchantment that takes over uh, people taking the streets. And of course, this is at a moment when like hundreds of thousands of people are in the streets. So, yeah, yeah, that that they they seem to recognize as if against their own better judgments something about making worlds of struggle together. Yeah, it's seductive. It's 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 sexy. <laughs> I mean, you remember, right? Like you can remember that the pandemic, early days of pandemic, terrible, isolated, 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 and then being with other people in the streets, doing what one could do in collaboration with organizations and with people you cared about and with causes you cared about was galvanizing. It was galvanizing. Um, it was the it, one could feel at once um, outraged, anguished, and galvanized. And that, you know, it seemed to be not accidental that that was the time to talk trash about Foucault, of all people. Right, yeah. They, they, they'd, been, they'd been waiting for an excuse, and they finally got <laughs> it, right? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Um, I always like to finish uh, my interviews just talking about the writing process a little bit. What was it like to return to some of your older writing? And what's a good piece of advice you have for folks who are trying to use different voices, different tones? Yeah, I'll, I'll answer the first question. Like, what's it like to go back to your writing? I think many writers will appreciate it. It's largely horrifying. It's largely you just see a terrible collection of ticks that you can't get over, and then you just realize that's your style. Uh, uh, but it was also... Um, pleasing in a particular way, like a long time ago, right about the, the beginning of the crash years, I just wanted to figure out, um, I, I wanted to do the thing that every writer tries to do, which is to figure out how to sound like themselves. And that's like the labor of decades. And I was trying to find out how to sound like myself, not just when I was at a lectern or a podium or in an academic setting, but to sound like the me who fights with people I love who might or might not have anything to do with scholarship or the academy. And that was a long labor, you know? Like it takes a long, long, long time to learn how to sound like yourself. I think that's a that's I'm riffing on a Miles Davis quote right there. Um, and so part of the pleasure of returning to them and trying to tweak them a little bit uh, was the pleasure of getting to be inside that voice. Like as a person who writes academic books that don't sound like this at all, mm -hmm. uh, that was itself uh, edifying and a kind of joy and a nice reminder that whatever I did in school, it lived in the world too. So that was, that was, that was kind of a pleasure. Um, um, as far as advice, I, I, despite being a teacher, I almost never uh, traffic in advice beyond to say, um, it's good to write all the time, even if what you're writing is at the moment bad, as so frequently it is. Uh, I got asked by someone I think in Los Angeles, like, so are these all the essays? Did you leave some on the essay? Oh my God, there's so many on the cutting room floor. Good Lord, yeah, they're just, they can't all be gems, as Krusty the Clown eloquently says. Um, but I, I, the, the, the impulse to write all the time is not a bad one. It's not a bad one. Just getting at home with your own um, practices. And for me, I'll just, I'll just say like, uh, you know, Andrew, I'm not rich in skills. There's not that many things that I'm very good at, but like, there's nothing quite as satisfying. It's just like making sentences. That's really what I'm in it for. Like, like I want to have some thoughts. I want to have some opinions, but really 
the pleasure of making sentences is the is the ground note of things for me. And if you can get into that mode where just the making of a set of sentences is uh, anchoring for you and steadying for you, that's not the worst way to be when you're trying to get something written. You know? And know that it just takes time. Well, that is it for our time today, Peter. Today, we've been in conversation with Peter Coviello on his essay collection, Is There God After Prince? Dispatches from an Age of Last Things, published in 2023 by the University of Chicago Press. Peter, it's been such a pleasure having you on Madison Bookbeat. Thank you for joining us today. Andrew, thank you so much. This was just a great, great pleasure. It was a delight to talk to you. Thanks to you and thanks to everyone there and thanks to all your listeners. I really appreciate it. You've been listening to Madison Bookbeat, and I am your host, Andrew Thomas. I'll be back Monday, March 4th, for a conversation with journalists Shibani Matani and Timothy McLaughlin on their new book, Among the Braves, Hope, Struggle, and Exile in the Battle for Hong Kong and the Future of Global Democracy, featured this past October at the Wisconsin Book Festival. You can find a recording of this interview on WRTFM.org and a podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to subscribe to Madison Bookbeat to stay up to date on Madison authors, topics, book events, and publishers. Thanks to today's talk producer, Jade Isiri Ramos, and news director, Shelley Pittman. Intro and outro music was written and performed by Alex Frizzell. Coming up next is Three Hours of Jazz with Alex Wilding White. Keep it here on WORT 89.9 FM Madison, listener sponsored community radio.